Welcome to the Leader Manager Coach Podcast, your weekly podcast where we take a deep dive examining knowledge, philosophies, wisdom and insights to help you to lead, manage and coach in football, sports and life. Leader Manager Coach is presented by Rob Riles. Rob is a qualified coach with a League Managers Association qualification and a science and medicine background. He has worked in the football industry in Europe, USA and Africa at international, premiership, league, non-league and grassroots levels with World Cup and European Championship experience. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Leader Manager Coach podcast. Welcome to the programme. Now in today's episode we're going to talk about further coaches in the Philosopher Coaches series. We have already talked about in a previous episode the great John Wooden and John Wooden was so esteemed and so powerful in terms of his achievements in his sport that he was called the coach of the century and you know you won't have any problem at all finding out about John Wooden and probably the the lasting legacy that John Wooden left uh, as we've already discussed was his pyramid of success and this was a a written down form of what John Wooden's values were in life and how he translated those into his sport and achieved the amazing success that he did. So please take a look at a a previous podcast episode when we we take a a look and and a dive into the life of John Wooden. On a previous episode to this one, we've talked about an introduction to the philosopher coaches and the, the great American football coach Vince Lombardi. And as I said before, there's been so much written about Vince Lombardi that, and we I say we've done a podcast episode on him, so we don't really need to go into into more detail about the great Vince Lombardi. But this was a man who was had a, had an appearance and a, and, a, and a character that was made of granite. Um, was an authoritarian. He was tough, and once again had amazing standards, a will to win that was second to none, and achieved great things. Real great things in the world of American football and as I said before the the inspiration behind this particular podcast episode was a book here's a book called Beyond Winning and I think the title needs needs a little bit of an explanation because the, the title says absolutely everything about why these coaches were the ones that formed the, the chapters in the book and why Gary Walton the author of the book which is subtitled The Timeless Wisdom of Great Philosopher Coaches why these particular people were chosen to be the the subject of this book and as I often say I can't recommend it highly enough if you want to really really get into the detail of what we're talking about but this is so worth sharing and so worth listening to and so worth further investigation if you are a leader and you have to influence people, or you have a team of people that you work with, you are a coach, and again, you are a person of influence with young people, with older people, with a a sporting team, a business team, whatever it is, or you have a management position where you need to organize and you need to create results, then the lessons and the wisdom that the lives and the achievements of these people pass on with a little 
small amount of analysis, you cannot go wrong. And that's why I'm taking the time to investigate and to share this. So as I said, we've talked about Wooden, we've talked about Lombardi, and in this episode, I'm going to hopefully talk about the other four. So I'm going to wrap it up and talk about the other four in, in this podcast episode. But just before I go into the individuals, the, the whole thing about these guys is that these people believed that winning is not the ultimate and that winning is not everything. The thing that is the most important and that is the one of the things that travels through every single one of these great coaches is their belief in the process that the effort and the will to win is the most important. And what these people are saying is, we have control of what we do, our actions, our thoughts, and what we can do. We do not have the ability to control the outcome. And that is why to them, the only successful way to live and to endeavor and to create your sporting life, your coaching life, your management life, your leadership life, is to focus on what it is you can control. And these guys redefined their own definition of success. They define success in their own terms. And, the, and to a man, they all said that the will and making the effort and applying yourself totally and utterly and giving everything you possibly have on every occasion is the definition of success. Whether that results in a victory or not is irrelevant. Now, there may be some leaders out there, some people thinking, well, that's all well and good in the world of professional sport where victories and 0.1 and, and hundreds of a second in swimming and, and athletics cost are the difference between a life of one level and a life at another level in terms of the millions of dollars, the millions of pounds, the accolades, the transfer fees, etc., etc., and the playing in the Premier League, etc., etc. That is the difference between winning and losing. I agree. I completely and utterly agree. I know, I understand, and it's absolutely true. But what I need to take you back to is the fact that all these guys, these absolutely phenomenal landmark people who had this philosophy that winning isn't everything. Ladies and gentlemen, these people were the most winning coaches that the world has ever known in their sport. And that is why they are worth listening to and studying. And I'm going to go into their, into their lives a little bit now. Because these people saw their sport, their calling and their work beyond winning. As I say, they define their own level of success. And what they did, all of them, they focused on the process. 
They focused on the process of what they could control and what they could do. They had a deeper perspective on life than the sport itself. And if you do not, if your sport is everything to you, if your, your, your business, your, your niche, your job, whatever it is, your area of expertise is absolutely and completely and totally everything to you and there is nothing beyond it, you are heading for a fall. Because what we do not have as human beings is control of outcomes. We only have control of processes, which is what these guys have told us with the examples of their life. And these great coaches had a perspective that went further than life. And the analogy for me, from somebody who was brought up, and if you look at my website and, and you see the things that, that I, I've talked about there and read the things that I've written and that were the inspiration for me personally, and you will have your own inspirations, you will have your own people who, who are your mentors. The greats for me, the Bill Shankly, the Jock Steen, the Alex Ferguson's, the, the, the Samat Busby's, all of these people had a perspective on life that was bigger and greater than their particular sport. And that is a parallel that was so powerful for me. And it's absolutely true because it not only helps you to be successful, it prevents you from failing. So it's, it's like a double-edged sword. It, number one, helps you to succeed and number two, prevents you from hitting a brick wall and falling. So these guys, all of them, set great examples for young people and they got their own houses in order. And I speak a lot and I reference an awful lot about Jordan Peterson because at the moment in the 21st century, the early part of the 21st century, this educator, Jordan Peterson, is somebody for me who speaks sense. And in his books and in his work, he talks about the responsibility, the responsibility of us as individuals to get our own houses in order the simple things that we need to do it before we embark upon the process of trying to change the world. And that's what these great guys have also done. So I'm going to take a look at their lives and I'm going to share what I pick out from, from these people. And the first one I'm going to talk about is a guy called Woody Hayes. And I'll hold my hand up and say, I hadn't heard of Woody Hayes before I read Gary Walton's book. But when I read about Woody Hayes, I was impressed beyond, beyond belief, in all honesty. Um, and I was a bit embarrassed about the fact that I, I thought I understood coaching and I thought I knew most of the great coaches. And I've never heard of this guy called Woody Hayes. And one of the great things that impressed me about Woody when I read about him in Gary's book was that this guy was... Certainly not. And this goes through the whole of these coaches, all of them. Absolutely not Mr. Perfect. He had an anger issue. And it's all documented. He, he, he was pulled up for his behavior on the touchline. Um, he 
he was a great football coach, American football coach, but he was chastised for his, his behaviour sometimes. So, and he, he had this understanding that, you know, it's okay to make mistakes, but actually what counts is can you recover? And this, this man was a little bit of a conundrum. So he wasn't, he wasn't almost like a, a perfect example of behaviour all the time. So for anybody who's made mistakes in life, and I hold my hand up and say, yes, that's me, make many of them every single day as I tell my players, then there's hope for all of us. But this guy had values and he had strong, strong values. And his values came from the things he read about. He was, a, he was an avid reader. He loved Ralph Waldo Emerson and he loved Emerson's work on compensation. And he says that Emerson was an inspiration to him and he believed in, in the work that these great philosophers and great writers had come up with and they were the cornerstones of his own belief system. He loved a poem and this is another reason that I, I really related to this guy. One of my favourite poems, and I read it about 20, maybe 20, maybe 30 years ago. I can't remember how long. It's called The Bridge Builder. I think we have even done a podcast episode about it. It's called The Bridge Builder by Will Allen Drumgoole. And one of the things that Woody Hayes talks about is this poem called The Bridge Builder. And it's a little bit like paying it forward. It's doing something for the people who come after you. And that was one of the values that Woody Hayes had. So he got lots of his strength from the greatness in the past. And what I want to say, folks, is that there are millions of people who've lived before us. And there are libraries full and an internet full. And there is so much wisdom out there that we can take little tiny bits of, of the lives and the thoughts and the philosophies of people who've gone before us. And we can use those 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years of life experience that these people have got and have documented and shared. And we can take little bits of those, ones that float our boat, the ones that think resonate with you, the ones that might help you. And it can help us on our way rather than keep making the mistakes ourselves. And that's what Woody Hayes did. And he used these things as the cornerstones to, 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 to keep him his values in line. And we all need that. We all need that. Because if you do not have your values set in stone, the world will push you and pull you and break you and turn you into what it wants to do. So you have to have those granite, nailed on, understood, fundamental values that are created by you, 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 and nobody else, that are a result of, of education, of teachings, and hopefully of things that you have given the due diligence to, to understand and think, I love that. That is how I want to live my life. And that is what these guys did. And I honestly believe that it's that process, the unseen, the subtle things that go on behind the scenes, the reading late into the night, the troubles, the travesties, the challenges, the downtimes, 
when you don't think you can go on, that you search for something else, you go on a search for, for meaning, and you find the answer from somewhere in a podcast, in a book, hopefully in a book, in a teaching, that you think that is it. That for me is how I want to live my life. And you use that as your value system and then you go on. And for an, a reason that I don't know, I can't put into words, everything works out for you because you are living your life as Emerson talks about and all, all the greats talk about and Shakespeare talks about and everybody else who's well worth listening to. They talk about you being authentic having integrity, living in alignment with your own values. But they have to come from a due diligence in terms of deciding what's important to you. Otherwise, you will not feel it in your heart. And that's what Hayes had. He had this resilience, as I say. So when he got knocked down, when he got criticized, when he failed, he stood up. He didn't take it personally. He dusted himself off. And he carried on. And he, he showed us examples of leadership and self-reliance that are so well worth investigating. So that was the great Woody Hayes. And when his coaching career finished, he wasn't unidimensional as, I, as I've talked about in terms of the just being interested in your sport. This man was interested in politics and he was known to the politicians of his time, the Richard Nixon in the 1970s. And he went on to do speeches and talks and used his, his abilities of communication and uh, influenced people well, well, well beyond his sport. Because that's what he believed in. And that's why people followed him. So he had something beyond his ability to coach, just his sport. Okay, that's, that's Woody Hayes, and um, a great, great guy. Next one, again, another guy I'd not heard of. A guy called James Doc Councilman. And this guy, this coach, is reckoned to be the greatest swimming coach that there ever was. Now, one person I did know, so I knew this guy indirectly, I just didn't know who he was, I suppose, because when I grew up, I was very fortunate to grow up. In, in, in the 1970s, the, the guy who dominated the world of swimming was this guy called Mark Spitz. And councilman ended up coaching Mark Spitz. And true to, true to these guys' values, um, he... Councilman always said that there are no such thing as great coaches. All that happens is that the people you think are great coaches just had great athletes. And maybe he's right. And that's why, you know, maybe Pep Guardiola has the greatest players in the world at his disposal, just as Jurgen Klopp does. But I don't quite think that's absolutely true because these people earned their spurs on the way to those positions. And I think humility is what councilman is, is showing there. What's worth taking away from James Doc Councilman's life? 
the, one of the standout things for this guy is that he was the eternal student. He asked questions of himself, of his sport, of his athletes, of his surroundings and of his training methods almost incessantly. He was the eternal student. He analyzed everything he did, his techniques, his training, his methods, his environment, and he, he attacked it scientifically as a scientist would attack a problem. And he was so good at this that he came up with different stroke techniques, certainly different pieces of equipment, and he was involved in the creation and the invention of different pieces of swimming training equipment to make his athletes better. Um, he really was somebody who was at the, always put himself at the forefront. He was totally committed, as he says himself, in the human pursuit of knowledge. He had this great curiosity and he was always asking questions and he challenged himself all the time. He, he, he talked about needing to distinguish what was important and what was not so important. And to look at things scientifically and draw conclusions. And even in his, his time, years ago, he was using data and analyzing data and using the information in a relentless, a relentless way to try and improve his, his, his swimming and his students and his outcomes. He was always searching for knowledge and that's something that we can, we can really take on. He was an experimenter. He wasn't frightened to go out onto the, into his swimming pool and we shouldn't be, be frightened in our, in our spheres and our areas to experiment and try things and fail. Now look, yes, there's times when it's appropriate to experiment and there's times when it's a, a, appropriate, but the more you fail, the more you learn. The more you learn, the more you can win or you can be better. So, you know, it, it's about having that courage and it's about having that self-belief that it's okay to try and it's okay to fail. It's okay to have bad sessions. You just got to learn from them. Nobody is perfect all the time. And, and that's what one of the great things that counselling teaches. The other amazing thing about this guy is his generosity with his knowledge. He didn't, he didn't keep it all to himself. He didn't keep it secret. He didn't cover it all up. He shared it with everybody. Yet he still became the prominent the most eminent swimming coach of his time and probably up to now is still rated as that person and he did it by sharing his knowledge with anybody who wanted it he was a very humble man didn't search for the limelight he he always tried to put the focus onto his students you know we talk about in football the game's about players not managers and coaches we're here as far as i'm concerned to to facilitate and, and, and allow them and, and to, to be, to have that, that stage so that at this time in their life, they can go and show their prowess and, and go and do their thing. And yes, the great coaches and managers are the facilitators behind the process. We understand that. This man, James Dot Councilman, had an amazing ability to build relationships. He was very, very close to his, to his athletes and he was very caring, he was very close to them, and the students who talk about him say that he was highly intelligent, but he showed them that he cared so much more about them as people than he did just about 
their, their swimming. He cared about their lives. He cared about their state of mind, how they were in their lives, how things were going financially for them at college. Were they struggling? Their status and whether things were bothering them. Was there any bullying going on in colleges? He was really into detail about how, how his students were. And those kind of responses from his, from his athletes were were in accord with that, that they would, they, were, they would swim for a guy that they knew actually loved them. And that when they, in, in their, some, of, some of the athletes who talk about him say that he had that effect on these people. And he really cared whether these people were recognized for what they did. As you might expect from somebody who was such a great experimenter and somebody who was in his search for knowledge, he had a knowledge of his, of his profession like no one else of his time. And as I said, he was so willing to, to share that. But, you know, he went on to be this phenomenal coach uh, in swimming who is still renowned today as somebody who possibly has not been surpassed in, in the swimming world. And, uh, yeah, so his relationship building and his search for knowledge for me are the two things that, that stand out. Okay, the next one. The next one is a guy called Brutus Hamilton. Now, the, he, Brutus was a great track coach who trained great athletes um, in, in the middle part of the 20th century, 1950s. And difficult times politically. And um, he was involved in Olympic Games when there was lots of political problems post-World War II. And uh, he negotiated all that. So he wasn't just somebody who had to focus on his athletes. He had to take into account all the things that were going on, yet he still created amazing amounts of success in his coaching. Once again, here's a man who understood values and had values. He, he stood up and he talked about being impeccable in your behavior and making sure that as a, as a person, your character was, was, was beyond reproach. Again, another very, very humble man who put it into his, into his athletes that it was absolutely vital for them to show honor, to, to show humility, and to show character. He wrote letters to his athletes. He wrote letters to his students' parents and thanked them for the opportunity to coach and, and said to them, look, you know, you've done this. This is your child. You've brought this child into the world. You've given them the, the, the grounding, the values, the upbringing. I'm just the fortunate person who's been in the position to be able to coach them in the latter part of their adolescence. That was the kind of humility and graciousness that this person, person had. He even communicated in letters to people who, who beat his athletes in Olympic Games and said, you know, well done, you deserve the success, you were better than us, etc., etc. And it would be difficult today in the 21st century for us to find people like that. And uh, I, I think that kind of value is something that's unique and is well worth holding on to. He looked at his job as a gift um, to be able to, to 
to deal with these young people who were at college and, and who had great running ability. And he referred to himself in his own humble way as an old weary man with glasses who just came back for a little bit more and, and shared, shared a little bit of his knowledge. He had no desire to, to be the great, the great upfront coach who was the front and, and center of attention. He believed like Lombardi and Wooden uh, in, in the team. He didn't advocate great athletes standing out and verbalizing about their own great achievements. He believed in team effort. He had a great perspective on life, the education and being a good person, a person that can go on and, and go beyond the sport and live a successful, meaningful life is far, far, far more important than being a great athlete. And he called, and this is probably for me around Hamilton, this is, is the, the ultimate standout for, for him. He termed the problems and challenges that great athletes, good athletes, great managers, people who are involved in sport, the challenges they have, either when they're injured or when they leave their sport, or when the time comes for their career to end and it has to change. He talked about many of them sustaining athletic injuries to the mind. And these athletic injuries to the mind are the adulation, the glory, sometimes the financial remuneration, the status, and everything that goes with whether it's in college, it's in university, it's in the profession, it's in the, in the world of English Premier League or Bundesliga or Serie A or La Liga, and you are, you know, this esteemed, glorified person who gets flowers thrown at their feet and everybody recognizes you in great recognition in every way and everything goes your way, makes you feel good. Suddenly, bang, that comes to an end. And without without the right perspective, without the right values, and without that integrity and that understanding and that philosophy of things beyond the sport, that's where people fall down. And he calls that the athletic injury to the mind. And he paid great attention to that. And he did whatever he could because he saw this kind of thing happening in his athletes. And he, he had a perspective and a philosophy of creating good people with virtues and values and good educations that could go on. And in addition to being great athletes, they would go on and be good people. And that the athletics, the sport, the success would just be part of all that. Which is exactly the same as what Councilman said and Hayes talked about. And seeing life beyond the sport, a la Wooden and a la Lombardi. This man loved nature, and um, at the end of his life, he was somebody who just used to spend his time with, with he, he worked on a university campus with, uh, with the, the birds and, and, the, and the squirrels and, and led a very simple life, um, and, and a man of great, great humility, who loved his athletes, who was gracious in his actions, 
and had a wonderful perspective. Once again, founded on literature that he loved and gave him that strength and, and, and was part of his foundation. That is Brutus Hamilton. So we move away from American coaches, of which obviously all these guys so far have been Wooden, Lombardi, Hayes, Councilman and Hamilton, to an, the only Australian. And this is again, somebody hold my hand up and say, I didn't know who this guy was. A guy called Percy Caruti. And this guy is known as Australia's eccentric genius. He was certainly unique. And before we get into his coaching, it's well worth understanding that this man didn't come to his coaching early in life. He, he didn't come to coaching, I believe, until well into the, the latter part of his, his life. Um, he didn't have this fantastic start in life. He didn't have this, you know, wonderful silver spoon kind of thing. He, he had to work his way um, and, and become a coach the hard way when he was coaching one or two people. But he was unique. Why was he unique? Because he believed in a natural way of coaching. And he, he was famous for creating uh, in, in Australia, um, which has now become a, a national training center. He, he had his, his, his hideaway where he would take his athletes and it was a camp basically, it was a training camp. And this training camp was known to be a brutal place. And it was, it was on the coast and um, athletes were subjected to a harsh style of living, a harsh lifestyle, which is what Karuti believed in. He believed in camp life, as, as he talked about it. He had unorthodox training methods. You know, the, the, there were strong rules in the camp um, that uh, there were, obviously there was a prohibition of, of, of any kind of nicotine, any kind of alcohol, relationships, uh, sexual relationships, um, obviously, you know, no cinema visits, no pubs, no, no, no bars, and, and people weren't allowed to come and go. This was a Spartan place. It had a rigorous daily schedule. Um, part of the philosophies behind Karuti's training camp were, were, were that pain is the purifier, and the way through to victory was through pain and suffering. And he used the natural world to do this and he had runs. I think there were, there were three famous types of runs and training uh, parts, specific aspects to, the, to his training schedule that he, he had. And um, I think the first one, if I'm right, uh, was a sand hill, something like eight, an 80 foot sand hill that people used to run up and down. I don't think they just ran up, up and down, ran up and down it once. I think it was multiple times, and uh, I believe that the the record was about eleven seconds to run up and up this hill. I think the second landmark, the second particular test, just like the Royal Marines and the the the, the, 
the Paras um, was a, a mile of over sandy trails, um, of which again had a specific time that you had to hit. And I think there's another one that was about a quarter of a mile course, which had a great a great steep uphill finish. But these were things that Karuta used, and he used the sea and water as well. He expected his athletes to immerse themselves in the cold, freezing cold waters, you know, and the fairly violent, strong waters of the Australian coast uh, with surf and, 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 and other dangers. And, but he expected his athletes to do that. And uh, they, they did, and they bought into it, the ones who could tolerate it. You know, they, they, they had a schedule of, of runs in the morning followed by natural breakfasts and there was no cooked food. He didn't believe in cooking. He believed in totally natural foods. Swimming, as I said, in, in cold waters. And he strongly believed in lectures. Most days he would lecture about his philosophies and his training schedules and what he believed in. And he expected athletes, obviously, to attend them. And he was a great, he was a great lover of St. Francis of Assisi. So again, somebody who believed in, in the great writers and the great philosophers and the great people of wisdom who've gone before us. And he used that and he, and he expounded that and he passed this on to his, to his athletes. He also believed in the use of, of resistance training and weight training, whereas other athletes at this time weren't subjected to that. So he was cutting edge in, in this respect too. And he believed in a certain time for lights out before good solid sleep and, the, and then the next day so this was a guy who who also believed in himself because he 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 led the line in a way he was tough he lived the same life he expected his athletes to live and he understood that this this way of living hardened people's characters and gave them this will and this underlying psychological strength and fundamental foundation that would carry them to success on the track. And it certainly did. It certainly did. His greatest athlete was a guy called Herb Elliott. And Herb Elliott was somebody who, I think only ran up until he was 22, but was undefeated in his athletic events. And he, he had a couple of times where he, he couldn't tolerate Karuti's training camp and went away. But the story is that the, the time he spent at the camp had created such a foundation of success that it carried him through. He did actually have to come back to Karuti to, to get, get, he understood that being away from, from this kind of training camp wasn't working for him. So he went back to Karuti and again embraced Karuti's way of training and the training camp life and his philosophies and his, and his harsh regimes. And again, it carried him to success. But Karuti was a unique guy. And he, he followed this right through to the end of his life. He lived it himself. And um, he believed in living a Spartan life, just like Lombardi did, and just a little bit like wooden in a way. And um, he believed in stoic philosophies. And um, these kind of things carried him through. But he certainly was a man um, who was unique and was cutting edge in his strategies and the way he did it. But I think the, the big takeaway from me was that he believed in something and he lived his life in what he believed. And by doing that, he created great success. So there we go. The, the, these are the six great coaches 
talked about in the Beyond Winning by Gary Walton. John Wooden, Vince Lombardi, Woody Hayes, Doc Councilman, Brutus Hamilton, and Percy Cruti. And there's all these things that flow through them. To a man, they were almost people who believed that sport was just part of life, and life itself was, and things beyond the sport were far more important. And they all tried to educate their people, their, their athletes, their players, in things that were more than just the technical aspects of the sport. And the people that their, their former players and coaches, their former players talk about them in ways that were very little to do with the sport, but much more about how he made me and how he made me think and created in me all the things that I needed to go out and be a good person. That they were often at the cutting edge, they were eternal students and they were sharers. They didn't hold on to, to their knowledge and information and keep it themselves, they shared it. They all had this phenomenal will to win, but they demonstrated it in different ways. Some of them were much softer, some of them were much more into the development of relationships and that loving, caring way that, that athletes need. They also need strong leaders, just like Lombardi and, and Wooden but they also need to know that as coaches you care about them and as leaders and managers you care about them. But they all went about it their own way. And I think almost to a man, they were founded, their lives were founded as examples. So they lived their lives in a way that they expected other people. They didn't have the philosophy as, look, do what I do, but not what I say. They said, look, I am, they didn't say it, they just lived it. I am the example, follow me. And that's what people did. And they were founded, they had these perspectives on life that were far bigger than their sport. But they had their values, they'd honed their values, they knew what they believed in. Just like Shankly, just like Clough, just like Ferguson, and just like Jockstein and Samat. And they were founded on great fundamentals whether it's St. Francis of Assisi, whether it's Julius Caesar, whether it's Plato, whether it's Emerson or William Alan Drumgoole or, or Shakespeare or the Quran or whatever it is for you, they, they had their values nailed on and strengthened by things that they'd given due diligence to that they knew were right for them. And that's what's important, right for them. And they just went about the process. And from that, define their own level of success, which was beyond winning. So those are the great philosopher coaches. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast episode. I've thoroughly enjoyed reading the book and I've thoroughly enjoyed sharing. Let me know what you think. www.robriles.co.uk forward slash podcasts or catch me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Our Game. Let me know what you think. Listen, as always, great to have you along. Always appreciate your time. Catch you later. Bye-bye.